On this episode, I'm in the room with pastor, author, and entrepreneur, John Onachikwe. Welcome to In The Room, episode number 72. I'm your host, Ryan Hughley. For those of you who may not be familiar with me, I am the founding and lead pastor of Ridgeline Church here in Salt Lake City, Utah, and the author of Eight Hours or Less, writing Faithful Sermons Faster. And for almost three years, I hosted a long-form podcast comprised of conversations with pastors, professors, authors, and artists about virtually every topic that you can conceive of. But then in 2018, when we started planting Ridgeline Church, my capacity for much of anything outside of getting our young church up and out of the ground diminished, and sadly, I had to stop recording these conversations. But now, by God's grace, Ridgeline is doing great, and I deeply miss getting to learn from all of these interesting people. So, In the Room is back, and I am so glad to have you along. Just before we jump into this next conversation, I do want to ask a quick favor from you. When you don't post an episode for two years, whatever podcast platform you use automatically unsubscribes you. So that audience that we spent three years building and the community that we formed fell apart. And so I was wondering if you would do me a favor and be willing to help me rebuild it. If you haven't already, would you subscribe to In The Room and maybe even leave a review wherever it is that you're listening to this? These two things are so effective for helping me get these conversations to the widest audience possible. So if you'd be so kind, I would love your help. Well, now that we have all of that out of the way, it's time to jump into our first conversation over two years, and it's a good one. Today, I'm talking with pastor, author, and entrepreneur John Onachikwe, or John O, as he goes by online. And one of the things I love about John is that he's a lot of things. He is the lead pastor of Cornerstone Church in Atlanta, Georgia. He's the author of the book, Prayer, How Praying Together Shapes the Church, which was published by Crossway in the Nine Marks book series. He's the host of a brand new podcast called Four in the Morning. He is a a council member for the Gospel Coalition. He's also the founder of Portrait Coffee, committed to pouring a new narrative when you think about specialty coffee. And if all of that wasn't enough, John is also Nigerian-American, which makes me very curious about his take on all things race happening in our country right now. In our conversation, we cover a lot of ground, and I'm confident that you're going to enjoy it and be stretched by it. To learn more about John, you can follow him on social media. I've put all of his links into the show notes. But for now, I'm so excited to invite you to come in the room for my conversation with John Onachikwe. Well, John, thanks so much for... uh coming on in the room. I appreciate it a lot, especially with uh, everything that you've got going on. You have an impressive list of accomplishments, man. Oh, <laughs> it's, it's intimidating. So your pastor Absolutely. wrote a great book on prayer, which I read this week. Uh, it's very, very helpful. You're on yeah. the, you're a council member for the gospel coalition. You have a coffee shop because apparently you were bored. And then yeah. <laughs> on top of all this, you got a great voice. Like no matter what I do editing wise on my end, I, I just sound like a prepubescent boy. <laughs> it's like deep voice. You're handsome, and you wake up at four a.m. Four in the morning, yeah, dude. I, so I know you have this new podcast, Four in the Morning, yeah. Yeah. which is excellent. So we can talk more about that. But I want to know, like, where did this practice of waking up at four a.m. come from for you? Yeah. So it was uh, probably two years ago, November 2018. Um, I stumbled into it. It was okay. just an accident. Like I got up and I couldn't get back to sleep. 
So um, I've got this little discon- disconnected. It was a tool shed on the back of my okay. house, but we bought it and turned it into a study. I'm not good with tools, right? I'm yeah. good with books. <laughs> That's right. So I would get out here and um, I would like just read and just spend time and just like use the time to do a bunch of stuff. And at the time, you know, my, my daughter's one and a half years old and I realized just how much more productive my days were by, mm-hmm. you know, 8 a.m. when everybody else got up, I just yeah. felt like, man, I had all this uninterrupted time and it just really got to a point where it was, uh, I never felt as rested as I did until I started getting up at 4 a.m. because then I just have time to myself. So I've kind of just stuck with it for the past yeah. two years and it's been life changing. So with all these different things that you do or have done, did you have, you know, when you think back 10 years ago or what, whenever it kind of all started for you, did you have a master plan that, or did you no. stumble into a lot of these different things or how did they come to be for you? Stumbled into everything. Okay. So if you know me, uh, one of the things that like people that know me know about me is that I am very, I'm very boring, right? So I'm not usually like super uh, ambitious. I don't okay. have a master plan of what I'm going to do. So I, I just love living simply. And okay. so it's just been like, a, um, yeah, my dream, uh, what, 18 years ago? Okay. Was, All right, man, I'm going to get done with school. I'm going to train. I'm going to pastor a church and train other pastors. That if I could just do that, that would be what that I wanted to do plan. in my life. Yeah. And just, I've just stumbled into everything else. So all the other things that you said, it was like, oh yeah, yeah, I guess I do. (laughs) (laughs) Well, so you're, for people that don't know, you're originally from Texas, right? Even though you're in Atlanta now? Yeah. yeah, Where where were you? Houston, Texas. Houston, Texas, born and raised. And tell tell me about your parents. What did, what did they do for you when you were growing up? Yeah. So, uh, both my mom and my dad are um, immigrants from Nigeria. So they okay. came over in the 70s. Okay. Um, and uh, there's five of us. So my mom and dad have five kids. And both of them are super high achievers. So my dad uh, came over after being educated in Nigeria, uh Got a master's here, became a CPA, an accountant, started his own firm, uh, raised us all. And then when he was bored uh, uh, 20 years ago, so when I was mm-hmm. 16, my dad mm-hmm. planted a church of which he still pastors. He's a bi- wow. vocational pastor, 76 years old, works full time and pastors this church. Uh, my mom was just as ambitious, moved over, got her master's while she was working full-time as a teacher and raising five kids. Um, she went back to school and got her doctorate. So she got that when I was in like the fourth grade or fifth grade. And so now she, it works, serves at the church and just loves her grandkids. Yeah. So what would you say are the, is the biggest mark that your parents left on you? I mean, is, is the work ethic, the fact that you've been able to to have the capacity to do these multiple things? You think you inherited that from them? Or when you reflect on your relationship with them, what's the biggest mark they left? Yeah, maybe. Uh, Both my dad and my mom have these incredible motors that I just don't have, right? So I don't have that. Uh, (laughs) I'm I'm, I'm too lazy to work like my mom (laughs) and my dad. So they have motors and they just work. I enjoy leisure 
yeah. too much. So I work hard, but I do a lot of non-work. Um, it sounds like they, uh, they retained the immigrant mentality and you fully right. lock it. Fully <laughs> lock it. Like, yeah. So I'm, uh, uh, I think the thing that I learned from them was like, yo, if you're going to do it, then do it, right? Yeah. Go all in. But if you're not, then don't, and that's fine. And so I think um, everything that I do, I I try to do well. I try to learn it. Yeah. Uh, and then I think the other thing that I really got from them, I learned from them, was just this concept of uh, hospitality. Like hmm. both my mom and my dad were just are incredible when it comes to helping. Like they just have bleeding hearts and they just know like, hey, everything that I have, I have because God gave. And so I just want to share it. And yeah. so I think, yeah, hard work and hospitality are two yeah. things I think I've gained from my parents. So did you, I mean, grew up in a Christian home. Did you come to faith early? Has that always been personal for you or did it happen later in life or? So it, that's the tough thing, you know, with growing up in a yeah. Christian yeah. household. I know I'm a Christian now, right? Yeah. So I'm just gonna say <laughs> that, that I'm confident of. <laughs> right. Yeah. But I um so I grew up and my parents were like, you know, people talk about, you know, I grew up in a Christian home and my parents were culturally Christian. Mm-hmm. Uh my parents were not that. My parents were the real deal thing. Like um every morning we got up and we sang songs, we read the Bible, we prayed like every morning. Like if we're late or not, uh, we're going to do that to this day. I mean, I left the house 18 years ago and there has not been one time. Um, and I literally mean that there has not been one time that I've gotten off the phone with my mom where she hasn't prayed. And if the phone gets disconnected, yeah, <laughs> um, there's going to be a voicemail with her yeah. praying. So uh, so at a young age, I understood Christianity, uh, tried to, rep- tried to repent and to put my faith in him and to live right. Uh, but I think not because my parents just due to my own ignorance and hard heart, it was a little harder. Yeah. I don't know how much of it I grasped. And 18 years ago this summer, um, we're in Nigeria right before I'm getting ready to go off to school, go to visit family. And, um, Long story short, we get robbed at gunpoint on a dirt road. And so I'm laying down in the ground, face down in the dirt. And all I could think of was, man, you know, yo, I think I'm a Christian, but I've spent my whole life like chasing um, girls and basketball, right? Mm-hmm. And I'm getting ready to go off to school and play mm-hmm. ball with a girl. Eight and she's going to go to the same school. I mean, I, I think I have all that I want, but right here, I'm uncertain. And I just feel this sense of, that I've wasted my life for this big hole. And so for me, it was 18 years ago this month that I just, you know, I cried out to the Lord for him to save me and change me and that I would spend the rest of my life trying to pursue him and make him known. And the only thing that I can say about that was that uh, it seemed decisive and determinative. So the trajectory of my life changed from mm-hmm. that point on. So I look back at that point and it's like, I may have been sad. I'm not yeah. sure. I'm yeah. a Christian yeah. now. That was probably the biggest turning point in my life. Well, robbed at gunpoint on a dirt road. will definitely <laughs> put right. things into perspective. You get real serious, real fast. Wakes you up. Yeah. So yeah. did you still go to school and play basketball or did you make a change you know, with school as well? 
yeah, yeah. So I came home and this is the funniest story. Uh, so I came home and I said, hey, if I'm really going to do this, then I think I have to change the trajectory of the school that I was going to go to. And so mm-hmm. this time I got to the school, Baylor University yeah. in Houston, or Waco. Um, yeah. And all I knew about it was it was a Christian school. So my little cousin was uh, at the house at the time. Um, and my dad rented me this uh, PT cruiser and me and him <laughs> drive up for orientation, check in at a Motel 6 right up the road. And for three days, I learned more about the school than I signed up. And I decided to go to Baylor. And it was wow. like, I didn't know anybody there. All the rest of my friends stayed in and around Houston. And um, yeah, and the first day of school, I met this guy, Richard Mullen, who became my freshman roommate. And that was mm-hmm. 18 years ago. And 18 years later, uh, we planted and pastor the same church we live in the same neighborhood and love that yeah 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 Yeah, my best friend from high school tyler dravitz he and i planted two churches together and that's great uh, right and it's i mean it's a it's a very unique gift to be able to do this with friends a lot of people don't get that absolutely yeah and candidly i don't know how anybody else does it like i'm just uh, for That's me. probably why so many pastors are miserable. It's right. <laughs> I don't have any friends with them. Right, 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 right. So what did you major in then when you went to Baylor? Marketing. Okay. So for me, it was, I knew that, um, I knew I wanted to do something ministry related, but uh, I took a couple of introduction to Christianity courses because uh-huh. you had to, and they made yep. us go to chapel. Yep. And I just wasn't, it just didn't grip me. And so I just thought like, yo, after school, I'll go somewhere and study. But let me just kind of spend some time in college learning how the world works from a business standpoint. And yeah, and we'll see. So where then, so you've planted a church now, Cornerstone in Atlanta. Yeah. How, how old is Cornerstone? Cornerstone's five years old. So, okay. we, uh, so we moved to Atlanta um, after college. I yep. did my master's at Dallas Theological. Okay. Uh, and while I was there, I helped to plant a church in Denton, Texas. So this okay. was from 06 to 09. Then in 2009, 25 of us left from Denton to move to Atlanta okay. and planted a church, Blueprint Church. And so I served okay. there as a teaching pastor from 2009 to 2015. Okay. And then 2015, we planted Cornerstone Church, five okay. miles up the road from Blueprint Church. That's awesome. So where then, if you you know took these introductory classes, it didn't grip you, at what point did ministry and local church ministry in particular really capture your heart and become something that you cared about? Yeah. Uh, when I started to read my Bible and I would share with people, like guys in my dorms or folks that I knew, and they were like, like people would just constantly say things like, um, yo, man, this ain't never really makes sense to me, but there's something about the way that you share it. It makes sense, right? So I've just gotten that my whole life. And it's like, yo, well, I love to share. And we saw the uh, the power of God's word work in folks' hearts and change. And at that point, I was like, yo, I'm hooked. I want to do this in some way, shape or form for the rest of my life. Uh, where my heart was gripped for the church is mm-hmm. that 
we would have guys in our dorm room or in our apartment on Thursday nights. And then they would go to the churches that they were part of on Sundays. And then the next Thursday, we'd have to spend that time really undoing some of the things that they learned there. So it just felt weird and just got to a point where it's like, oh, I'm tired of pulling bodies out the water. Mm -hmm. Uh, What seems to be forming the people more than the Bible studies that I do? And that's where it was like, oh, the church. And so it was from there that I just realized the force that the church was not just to shape people, but to mm-hmm. shape the very people that end up, yeah, you're starting to shape the world. And so in my mission to try to see the world changed, it seemed like that the that the church was just such an integral part of yeah. all of that. So then that was like, all right. So right after the school, I mean, um, I turned out a couple of sports internships and yeah. said, yo, let me move to Denton, Texas, where there was a group of folks that were trying to do that, take the theology that they love and put Mm -hmm. it in a cultural package and form a church where um, our kinsmen, according to the flesh, if you would, would be able to come back and look and see like they would not just say that about the things that they heard, but they could look all around the church and say, yo, man, I, I never really got down on church, but it's something about the way that things are here, that it feels, yeah. yeah. So, I mean, so I planted my first church in 2009 as well in Chicago. Okay. And so I know yeah. what it is to, to oh, leave man. something you love mm-hmm. and start over again. And it's heartbreaking and exciting and all of those things. But yeah. what what all went into leaving Blueprint and like, because yeah. I mean, once you do it once, I feel like church right. planning for most people is like, I never want to do that again. So well, that's do it me. twice is rough. That's me, right? So by year five, it's like, man, yo, I got my first raise. We don't have to raise support, <laughs> right? I got healthcare, like the good <laughs> yeah. stuff. And now we're, we're getting ready to move and plant a church in a community where, you know, the median income at the time was, you know, less than $30,000 per yeah. year. Um, and it it was really richer. So I ain't a church planner in the historical sense. like. Okay. Um, in 2011, Richard moved to the West End. And when he moved to the West End, he was just, uh, he realized how much the American dream had encroached on his Christianity. And him and a group of families were like, yo, we could move anywhere in Atlanta that we want. Why don't we move to the one place that nobody else wants to move? And at this time, it's the Southwest side. So the Northwest, okay. Northeast, Southeast was already starting to gentrify the southwest mm-hmm. this is our zip code 30310 and 30314 mm-hmm. were some of the hardest hit by mortgage fraud right mm-hmm. so um you would come to the west end and you know there'd be a street of 20 homes yeah. you know 13 of them are vacant and the other seven are like lived in right yeah. so uh <laughs> And they were like, yo, let's just three families were like, let's plant roots here. Let's mm-hmm. build homes. Let's let's uh, be um, uh, explicitly Christian. Right. So let's not do this bait and switch. Let's yeah. be like, no, man, we're Christian, but let's be intentionally relational. Yeah. Well, and so yeah. they met folks, they got involved in the school board, things like that. And what they saw was this community start to build and change. And you had people here in the West End that um, 
so the church, uh, and I think if I could put this charitably, yeah. hasn't had the best reputation in communities that have been broken and disenfranchised. Yeah, it's true. Sure. <laughs> that was a very charitable way to say that. Right, so, right, right. Yeah. So you have folks now here saying, mm-hmm. yo, I've never been down with the church. I don't yep. care much for Jesus and but they would say, yo, it's something about the way that y'all love one another and y'all love us mm-hmm. that, you know, I think if y'all had a church here, I think we would come. Mm-hmm. And so that was like 2014. And so Richard came over to my crib 2014 at this time, my wife and I lived uh, on the East side of town, happily pastor in a blueprint church. And yeah. he sat down and he's like, yo, I think that God wants us to start a church there on the West side. But he's like, I know I'm not the guy to lead the joint. Mm-hmm. Uh, what do you think? And I'm like, like at this time, God had already started to, to stir things in my heart. And I'm like, man, I'd be down, but good luck convincing my wife to move from where we live <laughs> to the yeah. hood. That's right. And so he's like, yo, text her. Right. And so at this time, you know, we're down mm-hmm. in my study in the basement. I send her a text message to come down. And Ryan, 15 minutes later, Richard convinces her and she's That's like, crazy. I am down. Right. So we talked to the elders at the church and our philosophy at the time had always been, uh, hey, here's how we're going to plant the church. Uh, here's how we're going to plant new churches. Mm-hmm. Let's let's plant the gospel in a context and where the gospel bears fruit. And that's going to help us see where we need to plant this next church. And so, um, yeah, Richard and them planted the gospel faithfully for years, you know, and Richard has stories, right? So Richard was here when it was ugly, I came in when things were better, but (laughs) um, yeah. Well, now you're living living, though through 2020 and 2020 has been a rough year to live much less dollars. It's wild. So in your, in, in your context and what you're doing, what have been some of the biggest lessons, challenges that you guys have had to face through COVID? Um, let's see. Uh, they are many and they're yeah. all across the board. Um, so, you know, one of the things I, I think that we learned and that was solidified really, we are... Uh, we preached through Proverbs for the first time a few years ago. And one of the things that hit me the hardest was a um, just realizing how many bad decisions or how many decisions end up being bad for the sheer fact that they were entered into hastily. Right. Mm-hmm. So one of the things that we learned or committed to was, um, uh, I don't think we're going to be hasty, right? So okay. um, so we've just kind of made the commitment to our, one of the things that we learned is like, hey, let's just commit to, we don't have to be early adopters except to things that relates to people's safety, Yeah, but let's be the last ones to the party, right? So yeah. um, we were one of the earliest ones, like as, as soon as the NBA shut things down, yeah. we're just like, all right, we're going to shut things down as a church yeah. for the time being. And one of the things that we learned was like, um, we immediately saw everybody start to rush to, all right, well, if we're not going to have church, then we've got a live stream. We've got to do mm-hmm. this. 
And one of the things that we said was, uh, let let's let's not. Uh, mm-hmm. We have the capacity to do it, but I think if we did it, that would take a bulk of our time. Why don't we spend these first? Uh, so we spent the first three weeks, and we said, "Hey, we've got 330 church members. Mm-hmm. Let's, as pastors, call every person and have a conversation with every person and find uh-huh. out exactly what they need, how their jobs are affected, things like that." So we spent our first few weeks. Uh, on the phone. Mm -hmm. And what we found out was like, uh, our people were just in a place where anxieties were high. Mm -hmm. And they were like, man, I can get preaching a bunch of places. We've got five years of archives. They were just like, this is what I needed. And it was just a real unique time for us in that one of the things that we've learned or seen is that, um, God really has equipped the church to care for the church. Mm-hmm. So people lost jobs and people got promotions, yeah. right? So yeah. it was this weird thing where yeah. we said, all right, let's do this. Let's call and let's get every need on the table. So money, this is how much folks need to live, right? I mm-hmm. lost my job. I need need this. And then we just said, hey, church, these are the needs. And basically what we're going to do is we're going to meet these needs through the Benevolence Fund. So the rest of our year looks like it's going to be a wash in some places. So we went back and tweaked our ministry budgets for the year and threw that into the Benevolence Budget. And then we just asked the, the church, like, um, yo, I mean, if you want to know how best you can help, the best way is to do that. And yeah, what we saw was like, what the people from our church gave mm-hmm. to meet the needs, those like first weeks was literally like 300% of what the needs were. Wow. <laughs> so, so the first needs came and it's like, I needs are met and yeah. we've still got a bunch left. And so I think that just started us on the pathway where the church saw like, oh, snap, like we we really do have what we need to care for yeah. one another. So that's yeah. a big thing that we- I love learned. that. Yeah. yeah, I mean, it happens yep. so fast. Like for us, it's interesting you yeah. mentioned the NBA because it was Rudy Gobert was a, that I'm aware of, the first- was the culprit. Utah Jazz, and then but Donovan Mitchell. Here, right? And he he was like, the, whole NBA. The, the world <laughs> shut down because of Rudy right. Gobert. Yeah, yeah. So, and yeah, and then we, I mean, we, we, we moved into, we moved, we rent a school where we yeah. do our services on Sunday and by God's yeah. grace, literally like two weeks before this all hit, we had gotten a ministry center for our offices, prayer meetings, stuff like that. Yeah. So we thought like, well, we're going to do some kind of live stream for three weeks and then we'll be back. And now we're five months in. So yeah. did no. you guys have to, did you guys end up doing some sort of live streaming later yeah. down the road? Yeah. So, so what we did for the first two months was this. Um, We said, Hey, there are rhythms in the life of the church that we think is good for the whole church to be a part of. So one of the ones was our monthly prayer meeting that we've had. Our church has been around for five and a half years. We've had this monthly prayer meeting for six and a half years. Yeah. We said, um, instead of trying to do this on one of the night per week, Here's what's going to take place. The fourth Sunday of each month, that's mm-hmm. going to be our prayer meeting. That's what we're going to do. So we did it 
last week, right? So yeah. the first yeah. few few months we did that. We had a member meeting the first week. We would do a Zoom call. So we said, hey, yeah. let's not live stream and do all the lights and stuff like that. Let's yeah, pay for the big Zoom account. Let's yeah. make sure yeah. that we all mute. We're going to have one person lead. We're, uh, uh, we're going to uh, teach. And then we're going to leave some time at the end where, you know, folks can unmute themselves and the kids yeah. and all that. Yeah. Um, and then we had one week each month that was family worship. Okay. And that was like, yeah, yeah, smaller groups. And so what that did was it let us, like, I'm just a big proponent of, um, <laughs> so, you know, man, after like week two, your inbox may have been like this. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was just hit with a bunch of like seminars and this, how to lead oh, in the midst yeah. of crisis and all this stuff. And I'm sitting back and I say, all right, the last global pandemic, I think was the Spanish flu, uh, 1918 <laughs> to 1920. None of you were alive for that. None of you were alive. So nobody knows, like, y'all don't even know what this is yet. Right. Much right. more how to lead through it. Yeah. Um, so from that standpoint, I was just like, you know, I'm going to let's wait and let's spend these first few months like John Dewey said this, I believe he said, um, a problem well-defined is a problem half solved. Hmm. And so we're like, let's just sit back and say, what is this? How might it change? Not just the next few months, but change the world or how we do things going forward. And so we did that through March, April, or through that uh, April and May, and then starting in June, we went to okay. weekly service and we tried to like live stream, do do mm-hmm. things on Zoom as well. And then we just got to a point where we pre-recorded, yeah. we loaded it up and it's, yeah. It is what it is. It's, it, it is what it is. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, if the pandemic weren't enough, like we're also in the midst of at least what seems to be maybe the largest civil rights movement maybe in history. I agree. And, yeah. uh, and, and as a result of that, uh, and the majority of that's very good, but tensions are obviously exceptionally high right now. Right. And what certainly seemed to kick this whole thing to the next level was yeah. the murder of George Floyd beneath the right. knee of a police officer. And yeah. so I've got, I got two questions about that. One is just okay. on, on the personal front. Mm-hmm. When, because because that video is what sent this into the stratosphere, yeah. what did you just personally feel and think when you saw it for the first time? And I mean, that's not the first, unfortunately, that's not yeah. the first black guy killed by a police officer. Yeah. So what is it about? What did you think and feel when you saw it? And then what do you think made George Floyd different? Yeah. Um, so I think when I first saw it, it was a... Um, so in a strange way, it was like uh, a numbness, right? It would be like, um, so it's like, it kind of felt like, you know, a surgeon that's practiced for 40 years, mm-hmm. um, getting news from his nurse, like, hey, you know, patient so-and-so died, right? Mm-hmm. Um I'm sure the first time he heard that, 
Yeah. He, but after a while, like, not anymore. Oh, it was like, you kind of just sit back and say, yeah, I mean, yeah, it's sad, but that, like, that's, that's how it is. Mm-hmm. And it, it was this sense of, oh yeah, it, yeah, that's how it is. And uh, it's not just, so it's hard. Cause I didn't, um, I don't think I've shed a tear this summer as it relates to those things mm-hmm. because it's, it's appalling, but it's not surprising. And in mm-hmm. some way, like I'm, I'm both sad and depressed that I, I just can't like yeah, cry anymore. So there's a type of, there's a type of pain where you like can't stop crying, yeah. but then there's a type of pain where you can't even start. And yeah. I think that's where I was uh, and am. And so, you know, I was reached out to by a bunch of folks mm-hmm. and it's like, yeah, you know, it's really tough times for us. And I'm like, there was part of me that was like, no, like this isn't, it's not like the summer of 2020 is tougher. Like this is, no, no, this is, this is the consistent stream that I live yeah. in right yeah. from day to day. So that was the feeling that I had. Mm-hmm. Um, so what I, is it then? Because it is so sadly normative. Yeah. How, and this isn't, I mean, this isn't the first video, oh. like, I'm to the point where even as a white guy, like I'm, I'm tired of posting yeah. yet another, it just feels like, yeah, just, it happened again. So why, why the reaction that we've seen to George Floyd from your perspective? So George Floyd was, uh, I think with George Floyd, it's like the cap was taken off for of the jar, hmm. but it's like these past years have been, the loosening of the the jaw, right? Okay. So, Philando Castile out in Sterling, the summer of twenty sixteen loosened the jaw. Yeah, uh, President Trump being elected uh, loosened the jaw. Folks saying, "Wait a minute, I'm just not sure about this." Yeah, the decency of certain things that he says, and then him getting in office and like him really being like from just a blunt and a brash way folks say, I, 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 he's actually worse than people thought that he would be in terms of personality and disposition. Definitely. I just thought someone would take his phone at some point, like right? at some point someone's going to step in and be like, yeah, you don't get to tweet anymore. And that has not happened. <laughs> and it hasn't. And the crazy thing is like, that is the normal way that the world works. Mm-hmm. And there's something about, what has gone on that it's mm-hmm. like, like that's what folks are trying to say. No, no, the normal way that the world works is if you speak out of pocket, somebody at some point is going to say, yo, yo, Donald, man, you tripping. Yo, you yeah. got shit, right? Yeah. But it's like, but now the, like, he's, he's such a force. So there's such a force behind him that it yeah. has literally turned the stream of normal yeah. human interactions where we do have to step back and say, yo, something's different. This isn't, this isn't how like we do things. Like there were rules to all of this and it's yeah. going. So um yeah, I mean, so all of that to say, I think like that the cat was loosened. And so here's what I mean by that in the summer of 2016, so four Mm -hmm. years ago, Mm -hmm. 
these months. Mm-hmm. Uh, Philando Castile was shot in his car, unprovoked by a cop because he had a concealed carry, told the cop, hey, I've got this. He's with his daughter and his girlfriend in the car, mm-hmm. shot. Out in Sterling in Baton Rouge, wrestled to the ground, shot by the cops in those two days. I'm shook. And mm-hmm. what I find is four years ago, I'm shook. And people that look like me are shook. Yeah. So I turn on the black radio stations, the Steve Harvey Morning Show. And four years ago, after those two get get killed, they say, yo, hey, y'all, it's these are dark days. This is tough. Hey, yo, Tommy, no prank call. We're not going to laugh and joke. Let's talk about this stuff. I turn on the white radio stations and it's business as usual, right? Mm -hmm. So in the morning four years ago, in the angst, it was still segregated. While there's a bunch of folks that talked about unity, there wasn't a solidarity around a particular concern. So black folks mourned while white folks were unaffected by it. Mm -hmm. Um, But then that same week, the five cops in Dallas got killed. Yeah. And then it turned into a national, let's all pray, let's all this. And even in that, like white folks like, uh, or folks start to see, hey, there's something with race. Yeah. But even those four years ago, I know me and a bunch of my uh, constituents, were, we still kind of sat back and it's like, yo, I, I don't think they get it. It took mm-hmm. cops being killed before we could all shed tears. Right. And I just think the course of the past four years have loosened the cap. Mm-hmm. And there was something about uh, a collective empathy that was being birthed in all of us because mm-hmm. Now all of us are locked away. Yeah, um, man. Rudy Gobert shut down the NBA, so there are right. no sports. Yep. There's nothing to distract us. It's the virus all day, all day, all day. And people this. are forced to be able to sit back and think. And then yeah. this, and I do think it's like a um, there's there's an empathy and a commonality built up when people are forced to share weakness, and so now. It's not George Floyd, this black man mm-hmm. that is other than me. It is, oh, no, George Floyd, this man that is has a mask, right, uh, yeah. around his chin. He's he's the same as me. Mm-hmm. And so I think there was a collective empathy that was built up. And to where it's like, um, and then it's like, all right, well, well what, what can you say this was not eric garner right wrestling with the three cops uh, well he'd be alive if he just complied this mm-hmm. is a man on the back like pleading for him to get up mm-hmm. one cop nonchalantly eyes half closed hand in his pocket yeah. while three of the cops stood around and watched and yeah. everybody's just saying what what is happening this yeah. is wicked and yeah. then i think it like led the way to people's eyes being opened and the great providence of God in all of this writing was, but we were still quarantined. Yeah. So everybody's saying, what can I do? And it's like, you can't do nothing if it's going to require you to be indoors uh, closer than to six feet, right? Yeah. To some, somebody else. Here's what you can do. Think, read, engage, learn about history. And then I think, 
folks are locked away in their house. And then they say, well, maybe I should read history mm-hmm. as told by somebody. Not a rich old white man. <laughs> yes. And then yeah. start to, to see, yo, I thought things got better with slavery. But mm-hmm. then man, as soon as slaves were freed and they were provided the Freedmen's Bank, yeah. uh, they were told that they could drop all their money in the bank and they deposited it in a bank. But the bank wouldn't loan them money. Yeah, that the yeah. people who owned the banks told them, "Don't gamble your money away. Put it in the banks." But then they gambled their money away on railroads. Half yeah. of black yeah. wealth is lost, and they say, "Sorry for your loss." Yeah, and then they move on, and so you just see, and 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 then folks see, oh, at every step in this journey, the government and people in power have. Um, not just done, it's not just they haven't done enough to try to fix the problems that they've solved, but they found new ways to exploit um, black and brown folks. And people really started to read and say, oh, mm-hmm. oh, oh, this is why Kaepernick was near. Oh, I get it. Yeah. So, and now you have not just the U.S., but the whole world. Yeah. And that was one thing that was encouraging, but it was also um, discouraging and led me to change uh, mm-hmm. some of my affiliations and partnerships like yeah. that. Yeah. Well, it's, it's weird because I think it feels equal parts encouraging, but also sad that there yeah. is just now this growing awareness within the white community that there is a problem. It's, yeah. like it's embarrassing. Right, and, right. and, and I know that some people still don't see it and there are yep. still some people that refuse to see it, right. but certainly there is a greater collective awareness that there Absolutely. is a problem with systemic racism. And so I, I know that this is a very broad question, but what do you think are the biggest things that need to be both acknowledged and need to change? Yeah. Um, you know, one of the things that needs to be acknowledged is, um, that the United States of America, as well as many of its institutions, both secular and religious, mm-hmm. have um, have disremembered their history. And that was a term. There's a bunch of people that have coined that term. Yeah. But all that it means is it's like a, no, no, listen, history is not forgotten, right? Yeah. You yeah. didn't overlook the details. Like, it's not like, me saying, hey, Ryan, what did you have to eat last Tuesday night? And yeah. it's like, ah, yo, I, I don't remember. Yeah. No, there's an active omitting of yeah. things. My, yeah. my parents used to tell me when, when they told me to do something and then I didn't do it. And I would say, oh, I forgot. Right. My mom always told me, you didn't forget, you chose not to remember. Right. Yeah. yeah. And that's it. And so I think that's the big thing that there, people have to know that it's like, um, no, there's a disremembering of history, right? Like, um, I think we have to account for like um, geography mm-hmm. as we see it is not um, is not an amoral thing that takes place, right? So, um, the decision to wear the clothes that you wear, right? Mm-hmm. The, um, it looks like you've got to like 
pink shirt, it's salmon a pink shirt. shirt. You can say it, okay. yeah. You don't have to call it salmon. It's straight okay. up pink, man. Off, right. Uh, <laughs> my decision to wear this white shirt to yeah. me was amoral, right? It didn't mm-hmm. have any moral consequences. I, I, I think people look at things like geography and where folks live and think, yeah. oh, that just, like, oh, the chips just fell where they may. And it's like, yeah. no, no, no. Geography is never an accident. Mm-hmm. That was, there are moral and immoral uh, intentions that have led to what you see now. And I think um, the biggest thing that needs to change, I think, is an accounting of all of that. Because until we do that, any action that we try to take to solve the problem is going to be shallow and it's going to fall flat and it's not really going to help, i.e. conversations about racial reconciliation Mm -hmm. that focus on unity as opposed to dealing with the injustices or the brick walls. Um, And I think once you start to focus on that, you really come to grips with, uh, oh, people were not just like, sometimes it's couched like apathy. Mm -hmm. Like, ah, man, like, I can't believe white people or, folks here just didn't care about the plight of black folks. And, and it's like, no, 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 that's not it. It's, it's architectural, right? It's it's not just that they didn't care. There were architects that ensured that these walls were built up. And, and again, I say this as just, and well, I mean, I can't say unbiased because I do have. Yeah. An agenda, but I say this as an objective reader of history. Yeah, but because of, but I think especially when you think about the response from much of evangelicalism, the fact there is an architectural systemic problem is the reason we can't have the only solution be heart change. Like I'm so tired of our only solution as the church is mass revival. If everyone got saved, this would go away. And let's keep working and praying for that for sure. There are other things that we can work toward at the same time. Yes. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So man, thank you. Yeah. So, so um, what you'll find now is people that feel that way will say things like, Hey, you know, we just need to talk about the gospel. Y'all talk about race too much. Mm-hmm. And the only thing that, that, that I say is I completely get that. Mm-hmm. Um, the problem is, and, and so I'm like, you just help me with this. Or, or I ask folks yeah. to help me with this. Um, the reason why the slaves were set free was because there were a group of folks that said there were a group of folks that talked about race too much and mm-hmm. didn't heed the counsel of the people that said you talk about race too much. And with the gospel applied to a specific context, um, they were free. Mm-hmm. Um, the people that ensured that me and you could drink out of the same water fountains mm-hmm. were key the fact that they talked about race too much. The people that ensured that I could vote uh, were told they talked about race too much. The pe- like on and on and on. It seems like what I hear is, let's just talk about the gospel. Let's not talk about race. Yeah. But what I see is that um, 
the people that talk about the gospel and don't talk about race are often the people who don't just make no change in the issue, but they are the very people that the people who talked about the gospel and race had to work against, right? Right, So it's not like evangelicals were apathetic about integration. They were pro-segregation and the people had to work against them who gave the rest of the world this religious thumbs up, like, nah, yeah, yo, it's a good thing. God made races, let's, yeah. Uh, 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 it was a, a group of folks said, yeah, like, who likes their food to touch, right? I hate yeah, when my yeah. macaroni and cheese hits my mashed potatoes, right? God gave us sections, let's stay there. And, 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 and so it's like, realizing just now more so, and it's, I say this as one that I've grown through the years, I've learned, I've, I've changed, just saying, no, like this has to be an issue. Um, Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think, and I'm going to say this, I think every generation, um, there are certain structures where sin is so housed that certain faithful gospel witnesses always have not just the sin, but the structure in its scopes, right? So mm-hmm. um, people talk a lot about John Calvin's institutes. Mm-hmm. I love his commentaries on the Bible uh, best. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that you see just in his pastoral heart, whenever he brings up an abuse of leadership, mm-hmm. He's constant. He's going to draw. He's going to talk about the papacy, the pope, the, uh, and he just constantly like, yeah. If it's Pharaoh or Nebuchadnezzar or Herod or the Pharisees, he's constantly going to bring that in because he just his sights, his scopes are always set on it, and he's trying to use the Bible faithfully in his context. And I think that if we're going to be Bible people. Yep. And if he is one of our heroes, then we're not out of bounds to do the same thing to a different right. kind. Because it's in the Bible. <laughs> not, right. even, not even just because, you know, Calvin's like the fourth member of the Trinity. But right. like I was I was teaching um, that story about Elijah just after, you know, he wipes out the prophets of Baal and then Jezebel right. threatens to kill him. And so he goes off to the cave and you know, God's not yeah. in the, not in the storm, not in the fire, right. not in the earthquake. And then there's the still small voice. What I found, what I had never noticed before until just yeah. a few weeks ago teaching it was when God speaks to Elijah and he tells him what to do, he doesn't yeah. tell him to just do one thing. He tells him to do two things. He tells him right. to go back to anoint a new King and yeah. Elisha. So there is both a political and a spiritual solution to this problem of the people of God have walked away from him again. And I think things like that really, really matter because all we hear about is we need to pray for revival, pray for revival, pray for revival. And it's like, yeah, but God has done more than one thing. He's always doing more than one thing. Yeah. Yes. So yes. And man, that I hadn't, seeing that, I think, man, that's just such an excellent thought. And it's so consistent with what God does, right? Mm-hmm. In, in, in Exodus, it's the same thing. God says, 
you know, Moses, go tell them that I'm going to set them free. Yeah. He tells yeah. them, goes to Pharaoh. Pharaoh makes their work hard. Moses goes back to them. And in Exodus 6, it, it says he brings them this hope, and but their spirits are so broken mm-hmm. that they can't hear it. And then what God does is God says, all right, Moses, um, you know, don't chide them, right? Like, it's not like y'all should get your hope up. But then God sends Moses to Pharaoh to go and set them free, right? So there's an aspect where it's like, no, it is natural for people not to feel like they can hold on to hope when Mm -hmm. their spirits are just broken. Yeah. And often one of the ways that we can lift their spirits is to demonstrate um, the power of God in helping to alleviate their suffering yep. or yep. their burden. And we're not saying that 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 is the gospel message, but we right. are right. saying is like, oh, this is something that, that Christians should do. Yeah. Right. Yeah, man. And it, like, you know, I, right at the forefront of so much of the debate and the conflict right now is this black lives matters statement. And I I want to talk to you about that. This will be the last thing you've been super great. But um, there's this deep unease in a lot of people to endorse that hashtag or that statement due to the fact that the organization is very socially liberal in nature. And so my two questions for you are, First, just maybe to help people that are still a little confused about this. The first question is when we say black lives matter, what are we saying and what are we endorsing? And then number two, what do you say to people who are uncomfortable using the phrase because of the socially liberal nature of the black lives matters organization? I'm going to, I might, I might like blow my gasket on this point. So I'm going to let you go first. Okay. Let's talk about point two first. Okay. Uh, And let me just help calm folks down. Yeah. Um, nobody black that I know thinks about the organization when they say the phrase. So mm, you always okay. have to separate the sentiment yeah. from the organization, right? So it's like, um, yeah, like which one came first, right? So it's yeah. not like there was an organization that birthed this phrase, yeah, right? And so now everybody that says this phrase realizes it's a derivative of the organization. It's vice versa. The phrase, the sentiment is the umbrella of which the organization is one part or the sentiment is the subdivision and the organization is the house. Okay. You don't got to go into the house to be in the subdivision. Yeah. What yeah. we're saying is, no, no, no. The sentiment is that Black Lives Matter and we want to champion it, right? So that's point two. Point yeah. one yeah. is this, right? And I just think there's been lots of pushback and all this stuff. Mm-hmm. And I just, this. All right. Black Lives Matter is a way of um, expressing something that has been um, neglected. So it's not saying only black lives matter. It's just saying, or, and all lives matter uh, is not a sufficient rebuttal because uh, 
Black lives were not included when mm-hmm. our constitution was first drawn up and said, we hold these truths to be self or the, the Declaration of mm-hmm. Independence. Which, was, yeah, we hold these truths to be self-evident that yep. all men are created equal. Mm-hmm. Our country has a history, history of saying all and- And excluding. Excluding black, yeah. So yeah. it's like when they wrote that, it yeah. is we hold these truths to be self self evident that all men are created equal. All right, um, can somebody send that slave over there to make me a sandwich? Right. So yeah. it's like, uh, no, no, no. This, no, that's no, not you. It's right. us. We're yeah. all. So when we say Black Lives Matter, it's saying, hey. Black lives matter. Um, mm-hmm. Black lives weren't included in that all. Mm-hmm. You may feel like black lives are in that all right now, but let's just be explicit so that everybody knows that is the all. And yeah, and outside of that, it's like a, it is so clear and it's so plain. And there are so many people of a diverse background that get it, Ryan. That at this point, it feels like. Um, um, it feels like arguing gravity that at yeah. some point it's like, I don't have too many conversations with folks that are like gravity, man. Ah, yeah. I'm not really I'm sure. I'm not convinced. It. Yeah. I'm like, Hey, fine. I, 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 I don't have time to convince you. Yeah. Um, my daughter's getting ready to jump off of our porch. Yeah. I've got to yeah. go and save her. Right. Yeah. And so yeah. at this point it's like, Hey, I don't have time to convince you. You know, people are literally like getting shot on the street that Martin Luther King was like people are literally dying in the community that I live. So I don't have time to convince you about gravity. I've got to go actually save somebody from the negative effects of it. So have you seen Michael Che's bit, the comedian Michael Che, his bit on, it's hilarious. (laughs) Dude, and and like, and borderline prophetic, like his whole thing is just like, just think about what we're, just matters. We're not, I just, then just matters. Why, why can't we just, and, and I think on the phrase standpoint and the organization standpoint, the thing that is the most just staggering to me yeah. is that we do that every day. If yeah. you go to Starbucks, if you go to Target, if you go to any any organization you go to, there is absolutely no way that you would stand behind every single value that that organization holds. And and that that's why I think well why why do we have such an aversion to being yeah. able to do that in this case when when it's literally about lives at stake. Yeah. Yeah. So yes, so yes, yeah. and yep, and yep. So so so, but too. I mean, and I I know sometimes like, uh, so I think that pushback and opposition is a human thing, and mm-hmm. that sometimes I mean we talk a whole lot about people that how folks in the church don't get it, but mm-hmm. you see like when somebody just has an aversion to mm-hmm. something it seems like they're going to find a way just to prematurely give up on that. So I have this convo with my friends that are not Christian and mm-hmm. they'll say, like, yeah, I'm done with the church. Cause the hypocrisy that exists in the church, mm-hmm. 
And I'm like, I completely get that. But I don't think the problem is the hypocrisy. I think the problem is there's something about Christianity or this concept that just doesn't sit well with you. Because I don't see you do the same thing with banks. Yeah, You're yeah. not like... Bank of America did me wrong. I'm done yeah. with the concept of banks, right? It's not like, right. no, yeah, you that's know a great how it parts it out. So what is really at stake? And I do think that it's, uh, yeah, people really do have to sit back and they've really got to go deep and, mm-hmm. and say, all right, what is it? What's real? What really rubs me the wrong way? Yeah. And um, yeah. Well, dude, you've been very, very generous with your time. And I, I think the thing I'm, I'm the most thankful for is I know that there is an immense amount of fatigue within the black community. Yeah. And, 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 and it is it, like on the one hand, it's like, it's really great that the collective awareness around this is increasing. And as, as the black community, you have to feel yeah. like, well, uh, yeah, welcome to the party. We've been here for a real long time. Right. And so I know that there is fatigue with like, we've been living through this and we're really glad that you're starting to get it, but, but it also doesn't need to be our responsibility to now constantly educate you on the whole thing. And so it's a gift to me that you would spend an hour talking about these things when the truth is these things have been talked about for a very long time. And so it is a, it is a, I think a demonstration of grace on your part to be willing uh, to continue to enter into these conversations. So I really appreciate that. Well, no, man, it's all good. And I, so I'd say two things. One is, um, well, I mean, three things. One, thanks for acknowledging, right, right, that, right. Mm-hmm. So that is just something that um, it helps to not always have to explain it, but to be able to say, yeah, man. Yeah, thanks. So, mm-hmm. so I would say one, two is I'm grateful to have this time with you, and I'm at a space where I am fatigued, and the only reason I had the convo with you is because um, I don't have to convince you about gravity. So I am done with convincing, yeah, yeah. folks, uh, but being able to texture and nuance a conversation is something that I would love yeah that I love to 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 do yeah um and then three I think the third thing I would say is um so I don't think people are as upset or like ah welcome to the party (laughs) right I, I I do think that that's some people but I think from where I sit it's like you know, the only reason why, like, the only time it's really, really bad to be late to a party is if the party's almost finished. Mm. So it's like, if the doors are going to close at midnight and you stroll in at 1145, it's like, hey, man, yeah, yeah, the party's mm. almost done. Yeah. As far as this goes, uh, this party of trying to achieve racial equity and mm. justice uh, is not anywhere close to being done. So anybody that comes through the doors, it's, I don't greet them with what took you so long. I'm, I'm just saying, yo, I'm, I'm, I'm so glad that you're here. Yeah. 
Good. Well, I think that you're a very uh, generous and helpful voice in all this. So we'll post all of your social media contact stuff in the show notes so people can follow you. But uh, but thank you for not giving up. Thank you for continuing to fight and to help and to talk. So I've really appreciated the time today, man. Yeah, thanks, Ryan. Oh, man, I appreciate it.